I'm Jonathan Goldstein, host of Wiretap. Each week you're invited to listen in on my telephone conversations, whether funny, sad, wistful, or even slightly strange. You never know just what you might hear on Wiretap. Uh, I mean, I knew you had a show. I just, I just didn't think that people actually listened to it. Howard, That's you... the breath of your genius, Jonathan. It's not just that you're funny, but you can be cripplingly, poignantly depressing. The Wiretap Archives, available on CBC Listen, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Every year, millions of dollars in Canada pass between hands, not through commerce, but through inherited family wealth. It's estimated that Canadian inheritances could hit $1 trillion over the next decade. And yet, a lot of this happens quietly, especially for those in the top tier of the income bracket. This is regular Doc Project contributor Craig Dessen. Like, when I moved to Toronto after university... I kept meeting these secret millionaires. We'd hang out a bunch and we'd seen the same. Then gradually, it became clear their parents owned a massive house in Toronto. And they had a huge lakefront cottage. And that these kids were somehow able to afford a downtown condo despite being in their early 20s. But no matter how close we were as friends, talking about this wealth was off the table. And the richer people are the more secretive that money seems to be. Transferring this much wealth, we are talking about tens if not hundreds of millions of dollars, is so complicated that there is an industry of accountants, investment managers, even family therapists who exist solely to help the richest families keep the money in the family. What I used to remember when I was growing up, you had to go to the bank. But I've discovered that there's a whole side of banking that when you have access... The bank comes to you. It's a world that's totally alien to almost everyone but those who are inside it. Discussing wealth is a huge taboo, and there are layers and layers of secrecy around it, especially when it comes to family money. And I want to break those down. I'm AC Rowe. And I'm Craig Dessen. And this is The Dog Project. Today, we're going to pull back the curtain to try and understand inheritance for the uber-rich. To make it super clear, I'm not talking about small or even medium-sized inheritances, like if you made some money when your uncle died or your parents sold their bungalow. We're talking about the kind of family that passes on millions and millions of dollars from one generation to the next. We're going to be talking about, and to, some really wealthy people, asking big questions like, What are the rules around this kind of wealth transfer in Canada? Why does our system allow parents to give fortunes to their children? If you are one of those families, what steps do you take to pass on this multi-generational fortune? And what does all this money do to a family dynamic? Because there are some lessons we can all learn from examining the extreme end of the wealth spectrum. And some questions we can all ask about how their world works and why it is the way it is. So... Craig, how are we going to infiltrate this world? I have a plan. Possibly a fun plan. So for the rest of the show, I'm going to imagine I'm an ultra wealthy, high net worth Canadian and that I need to make a succession plan for my three children and their children. Your imaginary children and their imaginary children. Oh, yeah, 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 absolutely. Okay, so a thought experiment about being an ultra-rich Daddy Dessen Bucks with sound effects and music added for comic relief. You got it. 
The first question is how much money would I literally be talking about if I were an uber-rich Canadian? 20 million, 200 million. All I can do is throw large random numbers at you. I have actually no idea what counts as super wealthy now. It's interesting, right? I have a good idea what somebody working in a retail job makes every year. But I have no idea what kind of money the CEO of a large company makes. Does Stats Canada know how much money the wealthiest Canadians have? Not exactly. First off, Canadians aren't taxed based on their net worth. So it's not reported to the government the same way that income or spending is through the GST. The other problem with finding out how much a wealthy Canadian is worth is that for a lot of large assets, like real estate or stocks, the true value of those assets you only find out when you sell them. Right. So where do we go from here? It would be really hard to figure this out, but the 2019 federal election made it a bit easier. That year, the parliamentary budget officer was tasked with finding out how much money a wealth tax in Canada would raise. This hypothetical tax would be on all assets and liabilities of Canada's richest. Not just money in the bank, but multi-million dollar private art collections and company shares. Basically everything except for, quote, wealth won in lotteries. Lucky lottery winners. To find out how much this tax would raise, the parliamentary budget officer would first have to estimate how much wealth families had in Canada. So I reached out to the parliamentary budget officer, Yves Giroux, to ask him what their research found. We realized at that time that there didn't seem to exist a very solid database of wealthy families because it relies either on surveys, so the survey of financial security from StatsCan, in which the highest or the wealthiest family reported wealth of $27 million. And we know that there are families wealthier than that, but like that picture was not very accurate when it comes to estimating the potential revenues from uh, a tax on wealth. The stats survey he mentioned is a voluntary survey of 20,000 households where Stats Canada straight up asks you how much money your assets are worth and what's in your bank account. And what was the $27 million figure about? Data about families with holdings of more than $27 million was combined on the public report to protect the privacy of the survey participants. Right. I imagine after a certain point of wealth, you're talking about only a handful of families, which you could start to identify, and then the survey is no longer anonymous. And here is another problem with the survey data I found interesting. Those who are at the high end of the income scale don't tend to be willing to disclose all of their assets to the government. So, Or they might be busy doing uh, something else, like making even more money. Oh, yeah. I can hear it now. Hi, Canadian billionaire. It's me, AC Rowe from Stats Canada. Do you have a second to tell me how much is in your savings account? It's for my survey. So the Stats Canada survey won't provide a full picture. It tells Eve's team a lot about the people with $27 million and below. And they were able to get a sense of the wealth at the top of the spectrum by using Business Week's Canada's Richest List and the Forbes Billionaire List. But they don't know much about the wealth that exists between those two groups. So how do we find that out? A Pareto distribution. I'll let Eves explain. So a Pareto distribution is, refers to the phenomenon that you don't have a linear distribution of income. So you tend to have something that looks like a hockey stick. Uh, it's the idea that you generally have a small proportion of individuals 
holding the vast majority of the wealth. When people talk about the top 1%, that's a Pareto distribution. This is a trend you see in societies around the world. So to visualize it, what Eves is saying is to imagine a long, flat hockey stick on its back. The flat part is the majority of society and their wealth, or lack thereof. The blade sticking up at the end? That's the wealth peak. Just a small portion of society, but they have much, much more wealth than the rest combined. A hockey stick. This, AC, is the most Canadian way to imagine the graph. (laughs) So... They took all the data, combined it with a few other sources, and put it in a report with a very catchy title, Estimating the Top Tale of the Family Wealth Distribution in Canada. Otherwise known as the how many Canadian families are really very, very wealthy and just how wealthy are they report. Now we can have uh, a much more stable and solid estimate when a party, for example, asks us to estimate what would uh, tax on wealth above $20 million or $10 million, how much would that generate in a country like Canada? The 2021 report found that the bottom 40% of Canadians hold just over 1% of the wealth. By comparison, the top 20% of wealthy families hold almost three quarters of Canada's wealth. And at the very top of that group are just 1,600 families with a total net worth of $583 billion. And that's the potato curve. Pareto curve. Potato curve. (laughs) So, for my old money simulator, where I pretend to be a high net worth Canadian for the sake of science, I'm thinking of putting myself one step below the very top group. I'll join the top 0.1%. The threshold to be in that category is $28.8 million. So just for fun, let's say I have $33 million. Yeah, that seems like a fun number. (laughs) It's hard to conceptualize $33 million. Like, okay, in a desperate effort to relate, I actually looked this up. Canada's Food Price Reports predicts the average Canadian family of four will pay a total annual grocery bill of around $15,000. So $33 million could feed more than 2,000 families for a year. But you're not going to be feeding the nation's families. What we're tracking is how your imaginary $33 million will trickle down through your imaginary generations. And now that we have our number... How do we start the old money simulator? I have it right here. Let me start it up. It runs on cognac and champagne. Of course. Don't we all? Can I press the big gold button? Do the honors, AC. Okay. Oh, shiny. Is it working? Open your eyes and look around. We've left our closet COVID studios in our slanty apartments, and we are now in the drawing room of a Victorian mansion. These red velvet couches are comfy. Okay, well, now that we are here, where do we start? Okay, first, let me check my banking app. Looking at my balances now, yeah, I see the simulation is working. I seem to have dozens of accounts, and many of them have six zeros after them. Very nice. And I'm opening my photo roll. No, these must be your children. Oh, the oldest one seems to be a doctor. Well done. And here's another. Oh, she's in some sort of corporate office. Not bad. Oh, oh, 
This must be your husband. Oh, boy. He collects Pokemon cards. Jeez Louise, he has rooms full of them. Tens of thousands of Pokemon cards. He spends a fortune on them. I bet you are paying for all of this. Hmm. And finally, oh, this must be my youngest, little Johnny. Oh, Johnny is a poet. Okay. And he lives in a Berlin anarchist squad called Amphetamine? Okay, you have your hands full, huh? So I have $33 million, three children, and the sad fact that I'm going to die one day. Hmm. And if my goal is to pass on as much wealth as possible to my kids, how do I do it? Well, first off, you'll want to know, under our current system, how that inheritance would be taxed. So I called up the economist Robin Broadway. He is a professor emeritus at Queen's University and the author of a handful of books and papers on Canadian tax policy. So I asked him under Canada's tax policy how much tax I would pay on a hypothetical fortune like this when I die. The amount of tax that gets paid on this money that you pass to your heirs is paid by the estate, paid by you actually, even though you're dead, and not by your heirs. So Japan has the highest inheritance tax of all at 55%. The UK has an estate tax. Even the United States has an estate tax. But Robin told me Canada does not. I asked, why not? We used to have an inheritance tax. was called a succession's duty in the early post-war period. After the Second World War, the federal government and the provinces kind of rebalanced the tax system, who is responsible for which taxation. And as part of the rebalancing, the federal government, which used to run this so-called secessions duty and inheritance tax, turned it over to the provinces in return for which the provinces gave the federal government more responsibility in the income tax field. So what happened was, it's kind of a classic case of tax competition. What happened was that gradually, one by one, the provinces abolished their succession duties. And I think the last province to abolish theirs was Quebec, which would have been probably in the early 80s. But most of the provinces abolished their succession duties in the 70s. And I think the reason that they abolished them was just for competitive reasons, that they they felt probably that they were discouraging higher income people from living in their province. I mean, there's not much other reason for it. And once it was abolished, the federal government never attempted to reinstitute it. What I want to know now is how I can structure my estate while I'm still alive so I can pay the bare minimum of taxes when that sad day arrives. Of course you do. So I figure I'd talk to a financial advisor and one who works with the super rich or ultra high net worth individuals, which is why I visited the offices of Chris Bokey of Rothenberg Capital Management in Montreal's well-heeled Westmount neighborhood. They work with a range of clients from people who are just starting to invest to people with a super high net worth. Even clients with below a million dollars or two million dollars will require well services. So we deal with ultra high net worth clients, uh, which are 10 million up. But we also do things below that as well. So I asked Chris, how do you pass on a huge amount of wealth? I mean, that's it's a, it's a very complex question, right? The more money you have, the more complex it is. Um, we'll start by asking, does it, is it a is it a family who has a company? If there, is there corporate shares involved? Um, because if there are, then it becomes a total different thing, right? Like when bigger families, like you just said, 10 million plus, when they come to us, it's going to require above our services. And we, we surround ourselves with like other people, so like tax specialists and everything. Um, 
So like, it's not so simple of a question whether or not like, how do, how do we manage a $50 million portfolio? Well, there's the portfolio aspect of it where we're actually, you know, um, going into certain financial instruments like stocks, bonds, and everything that we, we, we know out there. And we provide all those, uh, all those alternatives. But there's also the huge aspect of it is that's tax planning. Because while there isn't an inheritance tax, you still have to pay capital gains taxes on your estate when you die. Essentially, when you die from a Canadian tax point of view, you've sold all your assets and you're going to be taxed on the difference between what you paid for it originally and what it's worth now, hence capital gains. So if you own some stocks for decades and they've gone right up, your estate could end up paying a lot of taxes. So a big part of keeping money in the family and so a big part of Chris's job is figuring out how to pay as little tax as I legally need to. This requires what's called tax strategies. First and foremost, ask if you have any, uh, if you have any insurance policies to pay the taxes. I mean, those taxes are going to be brutal for your kids. So that is probably the, the new way to sort of look at wealth transfer is to use insurance products to kind of protect uh, the tax bill. Um, you know, like as we know, unless the government of Canada makes any changes to that, the insurance policies get transferred tax-free to children. So that is a good way to sort of um, offset any of the taxes that you're going to be paying through your through your estate. So, for example, I could create a giant life insurance policy that I could pass on to my children. Gotta say, I'd be pretty paranoid and suspicious of everybody if I were rich and had a huge life insurance policy. This AC is why rich people don't talk about their money. Okay, so is this your only option? Well, Chris has another idea. You can have your trusts, for example, and this is where perhaps a trust would would be a good option is that you're able to um, manage the trust even after death. You can you can essentially uh, elect a um, a trustee to do that, right? So sometimes uh, in the case of investments for big families, they'll will be a representative, you know, to manage the trust. And then we'll work with an, an advisor like myself to actually maintain a trust and say, if the if the will stipulates that, you know, I want my kids for whatever reason to only receive $10,000 a year from this trust for as long as possible, and then for the next generation or so on and so forth, then then you can stipulate that. Grandpa Craig is going to be controlling the purse strings long after he's dead. So, can just anybody open a trust? Yeah, it's it's a legal entity, like a corporation that holds assets or property. Anyone can open a trust as long as they're willing to go through the process and pay the associated fees. So which one are you going to go with? Life insurance or a trust? A trust. Yes. Control is important to me. <laughs> Plus, it's the only way I can put in a no Pokemon card clause. <laughs> okay. So as of this moment, I'm creating my official imaginary a state trust. It will be passing on millions to my three imaginary children and their children until the money runs out. Bully for them. I mean, even with the Nokomon clause, you're still passing on a lot of imaginary money to people who weren't involved in earning it and so likely have zero idea how to handle this influx in their bank accounts. A lot could go wrong. So that's why I'm calling in the pros. The Williams Group. They are an American company that coaches ultra-high-net-worth families through these transfers between generations. Their motto? We prepare heirs. Oh, boy. So I reached out to Amy Castoro, the president and CEO of the Williams Group, 
To get an idea about the kind of clients she has, I asked her how much money the families she deals with have. For us, the families are at about 20 million plus. So the average of our families is probably closer to 100 million to 500 million. I'd say minimum would be 20 million. That's where we start to see there's more liquid cash and there's more complexity in the estate plan at risk if they don't start preparing the family. I wanted to know what kind of problems the clients she sees face because of an inheritance. Usually it's jealousy, judgment, gossip, uh, anger. Um, you know, when when mom and dad have been talking to their kids for so many years and saying things like, I want you to be able to be the one that runs the business, or I want you to have the grandfather clock, or um, you're the executor. And there isn't much more conversation as a group about that. It can open the door to a lot of complexity. What we find in most families is that silence is the great destroyer of wealth because by not talking about it, nobody really knows who said what to whom. And then the day comes when the music stops and everybody's kind of wondering, okay, who's, who's going to do what now? It's a big grab. I asked Amy why ultra-wealthy families are afraid to talk to each other about their large inheritances. The most prominent reason for the fear that I hear uh, is the wealth will derail the next generation. So if they find out how much money there is, they'll stop working or they'll think, they why get out of bed? They'll just go sell grass skirts in Hawaii for a living. I mean, somebody has to sell grass skirts. But yes, the amount of money is so enormous. It's like, on one hand, having that kind of money means you're free to do anything. But on the other... It means you don't have to do anything, which creates a whole other set of problems for a person's life. Amy talks about how huge inheritances is such a life-changing thing that it can mess people up. We actually had a client where... He said, you know, there's there's no reason for me to get out of bed. Well, my friends are my friends because I have a lot of money. I can buy and do anything I need. He inherited a full city block of rental properties that he knew nothing about, and he was about 30 years old. So it was just too much too soon for him without any direction. There's this mental struggle if you and I guess your money don't have a purpose. So what are families supposed to do? One place to start is a quiz that the company gives clients. Do you want to give it a shot, AC? Yes, let's. Okay, so there is a list of questions with a spot for check marks. Um, some of them are heirs understand their future roles and have bought into those roles and look forward to performing those roles. Okay, fair enough. Um, our family considers family unity to be just as important as family financial strength. I guess that needs to be said. Our family has a mission statement that spells out the overall purpose of our wealth. I mean, how do you even approach a family wealth mission statement? I asked Amy to break down how you write one. They're probably one of the most important documents that a family can pull together. They're important, one, because it's usually built, at least on our through our process, it's built by the entire family, anybody 16 years and older. And 
it re- it takes a look at everybody's values, gets their values spoken in a very powerful way in key domains of life, and then it's distilled. The whole family builds this actual mission statement. The process to building the mission statement is as important as the mission statement itself because they're learning to practice how do I understand your values, although I may not agree with them? How can I live with them? How can I appreciate you for who you are, even though your values are different? When they build this mission statement, almost, I'd say 99% of the time, there's things in there like education is important or family unity is important. So when they write family unity is important, we ask them to start operationalizing that so that this doesn't remain just a pretty phrase on a mouse pad. Now they're starting to figure out, okay, what are the actions we want to take so that we're actually living these values? So for example, in family unity, they might say, well, we want to get together as a family every year. Great. So is there a budget for that? Are we paying for that? Or is mom and dad paying for that? Is it a first-class ticket? Is it an international destination? Who gets to pick where and when? Is that a rotating responsibility? It's actually having these conversations so that a family can get really clear on how are they going to make this happen. It sounds kind of like family therapy meets wealth management boot camp. But I mean, also some of it could apply to any family. Yeah, like to create a succession or even just a regular old inheritance plan involves input from the children. And it's important to have a lot of family meetings to make sure everyone is on the same page. Exactly. But then some of it sounds a bit alien. Like, what is your family mission statement for the Dessen Trust? This is genuinely hard. Well, what's important to you? Real me or millionaire me? Let's start with real you. Okay, hard work, uh-huh. um, respect for the environment. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I, 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 I don't know <laughs> if I have enough money to have the perspective to create a mission statement like this. Yeah, absolutely. So what about imaginary millionaire you? Oh, much more fun. Heathenism, supporting the <laughs> underground dance music scene, funding research into fun new recreational drugs, and supporting poets. Basically, whatever poet Johnny wants. Oh, the future is in the hands of Poet Johnny. I mean, it's interesting, though, that the things that you, I mean, even when you're joking, I'm assuming that you were slightly joking. This wealth, it isn't just about impacting the family, but impacting society at large. Like you pinpointed funding the arts and the sciences in a sense. And so I guess I wonder if things like a mission statement are a way to massage the psychological tension, not so much for the parents, but for the kids inheriting a bunch of money they did not personally earn. Which brings me to a question that I asked Amy. What is the value of giving a small group of children so much wealth? One, if it's a large family and they have family businesses, then they're employing people. And those people can put their kids through school that maybe they couldn't before. Right. So the classic, the rich create jobs argument. But what if your family doesn't have a business, just a lot of money? Another way that it is helping is they build a huge network. And so before you know it, they're funding the bill for maybe individual kids that couldn't go to college, right? That happens often with our clients. They see a diamond in the rough and they want to support that kid and they'll pay for their education. Obviously through philanthropy, that happens a lot. Um, Very often these families of great wealth have built 
highly educated individuals themselves. And so they're generating new ideas. They're driving society. I asked a similar question to Rob in The Economist we heard earlier. I asked if there was an economic argument for allowing large amounts of capital to pass through families through inheritances. Large inheritances that are passed on from generation to generation that create big inequalities generate problems of of political instability. They create a class of people who have a whole bunch of money and having that much money allows them to influence the political system. You know, they can, especially in the U.S., not so much here, but they, they have big influence over the political system. They do things that essentially protect their kids and they don't really, they don't really do things that, there's no particular reason why these large amounts of money are going to generate more productive investments than money in the hands of anybody else. It's just, there's not a whole lot of evidence uh, to support that. I mean, I suppose there are some family dynasties for which heirs of fortunes go on to become famous investors or inventors or, or whatever. But I don't, I don't think there's a big correlation between inheriting wealth and being more productive in society. As an imaginary ultra-rich Canadian, I'm finding it hard to know what I should think or what I should do but I know who can help me. Some real-life ultra-high net worth individuals with non-imaginary children? Exactly. Excellent. That is next. We need to take a quick break, but we'll be back in a minute with some of Canada's real-life rich. Sit tight. Hi, I'm Caitlin Prest, and I am here in your ear to tell you about a very incredible new show called Asking For It. Asking For It is a darkly comedic series that follows a queer femme singer whose history of violence finds her no matter how many times she runs away. It has an original soundtrack, and it'll make you laugh, cry, and feel a little bit less alone. Asking For It. Subscribe now. Okay, who is first? I wanted to talk to France Saint-Alamy. He's the vice president of LeaderTech, a Montreal company that creates technology for autonomous vehicles. And France is your quintessential self-made man. His family were not rich. He grew up in a family of 13 kids. The less money you have, the more you think of money. But when money is no longer a primary goal, you know, uh, you don't think necessarily about money that often. So, you know... I used to think about money because I needed money to buy clothes. I needed money to, to eat and to buy the basic things. Well, you know, access to basic things are no longer a priority. And so therefore, I don't have that money motivation. What motivates me is achieving things. When you filter for Canada, the Forbes billionaire list is a pretty monochromatic group. From what I can tell, almost everyone is white. And when you start looking for wealthy people to interview, which I did, just about everyone you come across is white. France is black. He was born in Haiti, one of the poorest countries in the world. So the wealth he's acquired and hopes to pass on to his children, it has an additional layer to it. Now, of course, my children will live different problems than, let's say, your children or someone else's children. Um, we have different uh, different obstacles that we, we face. Um, so of course, you know, a person of color with, with more money 
um, you face less problems than a person of color with 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 less money. Um, and so I do feel that for me, my kids, the biggest thing that I will give them is that will, uh, the drive and the resilience, the creativity uh, to think differently and to do differently. So I asked him for his advice on passing on a fortune to children. If you don't prepare them and have rules and boundaries, it's like giving them access to a gun, a loaded gun. And so therefore, I think, you know, that preparation and then make rules, you know, that are either family rules or money rules or generational. I'm not of the camp of leaving everything to your children because I think that's no one gets a, a free pass. Um, and what I do hope is I can maybe pass on a company or an infrastructure or you know a project that they can actually improve on. Money can disappear as quickly as, as you have it. And so for me, that, that's not a lasting legacy. What France says calls back to the family mission statement. You can't just give money to your descendants. You need to give them a set of goals for what to do with the money. But also, the thing about France is he's new money. He's the, quote, wealth creator. So he doesn't have the experience of getting wealth handed to him by his parents or growing up surrounded by it. Which is why I reached out to Megan Bell. Okay, I have heard of Megan. She wrote an article a few years back about her family. It was called, I'm part of the 0.1% and I want a wealth tax. So that tells you a bit about where she stands. Megan grew up in a wealthy Vancouver neighborhood. She said growing up, she was shocked by how much money her family spent. I'd come home and like see that my mother had like spent as much money on like a renovation or new furniture that, that she didn't need, non- non-essential renovations or new furniture buying or kind of extravagant vacations um, that could have like made a meaningful difference in somebody else's life that I knew. But it was her father's comparative wealth that really drove home for her just how rich her family was. You know, I think my dad's net worth is over $100 million with owning a private company and all the property and stuff. And, you know, I mean, that was another thing that kind of, like, shook me up, was, like, figuring out how much my dad was worth and looking up, like, some of my favorite, like, artists or thinkers and stuff and be like, wait, why is my dad worth more than, like, this best-selling author that I love or this famous scientist or doctor? That doesn't seem right. Like... (laughs) something's wrong here. She says all this money has shaped their attitudes and behavior. They have this whole, you know, we've earned it mentality that in a lot of ways is quite scary because I think if you think you earned it and deserved it, it makes you more entitled and more selfish and more prone to looking down on people who have less than you. That kind of like drove me nuts about my family is go to a family dinner and people would be talking nonstop about like investment portfolios. We've been talking about the secrecy around money, especially family money. And I wanted to know if Megan had experienced this herself. I swear to God, you know, nobody will ever admit that they're rich. They're always like focusing on the people who are wealthier than them and comparing upwards. It was hard for me to like separate myself from my family 
um, because the secrecy and it's hard to explain. Yeah. I just, you know, it's a lot of people I know from wealthy families, like they largely just hang out with each other. You know, it's the families will be very close, but in the sense that they're keeping secrets from outsiders, um, not in a healthy closeness. So I asked for Megan's advice on passing on a fortune. I would probably just say it's like, you know, this is, you're really lucky. This is a big responsibility and try to be responsible with it. Um, And then I would just hope that she's not going to be an asshole who decides to blow it. I don't even know if I'm going to inherit money. Like if my family cut me off or wrote me out of their wills, I'd kind of get it at this point. Like, let's be honest, I don't think you can do interviews like this or write the essays I wrote without considering that a possibility. But I really think that there just shouldn't be people who've ever managed to accumulate so much money that that becomes a question. So, Craig, after hearing all this, what are you going to do? There are major differences between how France and Megan came into wealth and how it impacts their daily lives and how they see it. For France, wealth can insulate him and his children from a degree of racial bias. But he's also excited about the power wealth gives him to achieve interesting things that impact society. For her part, Megan found money made the people in her life entitled. So, like France suggested, should I get the children excited about all the opportunities this money might offer them? Or do I listen to Megan, who is more interested in taxing wealth than building it, and warn them about the dangers and negative impact this money could have on their lives? But neither France nor Megan is part of an epic Canadian dynasty, and that is who I want to talk to next. Actual old money. Yes, somebody a few generations away from the wealth creation. Do you know any dynastically wealthy people? I don't. But know who did? No. My grandmother, or Nana, as I called her. Yeah, Nana. Nana Nancy Smith, she was a dressmaker for rich Westmount women like the Molsons. They would need tons and tons of clothes. Gowns for society balls, cruises, or something summery to wear at your chalet in the Laurentians. When my aunt was young, she remembered a woman named Mire, who had come to their little apartment in a Jaguar. Mire was part of the Morgan family. The Morgans made a fortune when they opened the first department stores in Canada in the 1800s in Montreal. One of the patriarchs, Frederick Cleveland Morgan, he collected tens of thousands of pieces of art that basically made the Montreal Museum of Fine Arts what it is today. They also owned hundreds of acres of farmland in the West Island of Montreal, which is where I met Elizabeth Morgan in Seneville. Elizabeth? Hi. Hi. Nice to meet you. (laughs) Elizabeth is a spry 70-something woman whose original idea for an interview was to cross-country ski. You want to go cross-country skiing for an hour under the woods? Did you take her up on her invitation to ski? It's hard to ski and hold a microphone. Yeah, no kidding. So I suggested we walk along the property. A rambling collection of fields, greenhouses, and hedgerows. I started by asking her if she remembered my grandmother, Nancy. 
She was probably a seamstress and taking things in or out or whatever, because my father, when he ran um, the Morgan store in the, the 50s and 60s, or the 40s and 50s, um, was also in charge of buying the uh, ladies' fashions from Paris and from all the different designers. And uh, my mother had a Jaguar, and so that, that confirms that. And she loved it very much. It was her pride and joy. She just adored it. And uh, so she would have the first uh, sort of um, hint of, of what the season was bringing, and, uh, and she loved to party, and she entertained at uh, our house on Peel Street um, continuously. And so she always had the best of all the different things coming in. And uh, probably was, um, I mean, I, I know she was, she had a seamstress and, and that it probably was your, your grandmother, which is really kind of a circle there. I asked her what it was like growing up in a world like that. It was a bit, a bit like tail end of upstairs, downstairs. You know, we all had staff. There were, you know, chauffeurs and cooks and uh, uh, gardeners and uh, all that kind of thing. Um, it was sort of the tail end of, of, of all that kind of lifestyle. But uh, when you had a big house and you had different houses, you had to have staff. You know, that was just the way it was. Were you aware of how, like, unique and privileged that position was? or Not really. Not really. Like, for, well, no, because you don't know anything better. Um, you sort of took it, uh, you didn't realize how the differences of the world until you, you know, became a bit older. We went to private schools. People were sort of, you know, the, the same. Or, and we, we didn't sort of think about it, you know. It, um, it was only uh, later that uh, I realized how f- much more fortunate we were. A key part of this story is that Elizabeth didn't think she was going to inherit basically any of this. Most everything was supposed to go to her brother. She wasn't going to inherit the business or the property, but it wouldn't matter because the plan for her was to, quote, marry well and be taken care of. None of that ended up happening when her brother got sick. I was working with my brother in 1969, and he was starting to to feel something in his neck. Anyway, 1972... He ended up going to the hospital and finding out, found out that he had uh, Hodgkin's disease and uh, was blasted with radiation and um, it didn't go well. Anyway, he was two years going through chemotherapy and radiation and they didn't have a cure then. But he, uh, he came out the other end and was in remission for seven years and then he got it back badly and died. My father died just a few years later. So all of a sudden, I ended up inheriting the land, and uh, I wasn't prepared at all um, because I was brought up supposed to be married, you know, supposed to be married off to somebody else with the same sort of background and not be a professional. And anyway, so I don't have the business uh, know-all, but uh, fortunately, the the family had created a trust company after... Um, Morgan's. It it evolved into the Morgan Trust Company and um, was run by my father until 1986. Yeah, I think, yeah, in 87 he died. Um, So I wasn't uh, prepared. 
It wasn't only that Elizabeth wasn't prepared. She didn't really want to be a business person. She wanted to work in film, and she was interested in political activism. So clearly the Morgans did not do a family mission statement. Nope. And what followed was a lot of financial turbulence that Elizabeth doesn't want to talk about on the record. But most of what's left of the Morgan fortune is a 27-acre organic farm and part ownership of an adjacent nine-hole golf course, the oldest in Canada, according to their website. But the stores that had created this fortune were sold to the Hudson Bay in 1960. Her father took that money from the sale of the store and it became the Morgan Trust Company until 1989. Then that trust was sold to a financial institution. A lot of people peers of mine said, well, you know, uh, you may as well spend it while you have it and enjoy your life and uh, the kids will have to, you know, figure it out for themselves. Um, I'm a little bit, a little bit uh, more cautious and, and want to provide for my, my son and my grandchild, but, you know, it's, it's difficult. It's difficult. It's, uh, as you get to the end of a fortune, it's, uh, you have to, uh, keep on downsizing and downsizing. Elizabeth eventually sold the house associated with the property, and she sold the farmland that we're currently on to her son. So the Morgan department store dynasty is going to become a farming dynasty. Well, Elizabeth points out there is no fortune to be made in farming 27 acres. And on top of that, her son is probably going to be the last Morgan to own property on Montreal's West Island. In 2019, Montreal Mayor Valérie Plante announced a plan to create the Grand Parc de l'Ouest, a 3,000-acre municipal park that would be the largest in Canada. Recently, Elizabeth's son was told by the city that they had the first right of refusal on any land sale. So if they want to sell the land, the city gets to decide if they want to buy it first. So from private land to public park in just a few generations. Her son says he has no plans to sell the land. They plan to be there for a long time. Even still, she says the city isn't keen to see any development on the land. You can't even build on it without permission. You know, it's uh, there are a lot of... Uh, I don't even know if I'll be able to build a barn. What I'm seeing here is how time changes everything. So... What did Elizabeth think of your plan to create a trust fund for your three imaginary children? Yeah, I asked her advice on passing on a fortune, and her answer surprised me. I think sharing. I think, sh- you know, sharing what you have in in whatever way you can, <clears throat> making other people's lives a little bit easier comes to mind right away. Um, you have to f- I support organizations that uh, you feel need um, uh, need help if it's um, you know dog shelters or women's shelters or um, a church. Do something that that uh, you know that will leave the world a better place. Uh, it sounds very trite, but uh, yeah, you can't just um, keep on making money, making money, making money. All this time, I've been thinking that the only thing that matters in an inheritance is money. But if you look at Elizabeth's story, while there isn't the fortune there was a couple decades ago, you can see she inherited something else from her grandfather. Something else to sustain her and her son, and probably her seven-month-old grandson. A love of farming. Elizabeth's grandfather, Frederick Cleveland Morgan, along with being a businessman, also studied botany at Cambridge University. He loved to grow things. 
he had a huge alpine garden, which Elizabeth said was world-renowned. He even used part of his fortune to help create the Morgan Arboretum, a huge nature preserve on the west island of Montreal that is now owned by McGill University. And Elizabeth's grandmother also raised her with a love of nature. When I had problems later on in life, going through teenage whatever, um, she would always say, you know, trust in, trust, look to nature. Uh, trust in nature, uh, you know. And she would always sit, uh, as long as there was a tree to see, she was happy. And uh, the sun. And uh, so that, that kind of uh, groundedness uh, helped me all my life. So now the chauffeurs and cooks and mansions and all those trappings of luxury are gone. But what's still there is this attachment to farming and growing things. She's leased the land to a nonprofit called Centre Paul Roulon, who are growing affordable organic food on the land. It seems the lesson here is that creating a dynasty can be about giving away wealth and not preserving it. Looking at Elizabeth's story, the money comes and goes anyways. So you might as well give it away in a meaningful way. And she says, you can't keep making money forever. And that money isn't the true value of an inheritance. It's values, not cash, that shape the next generation. All that is great, but still, why does she get to learn those lessons? Anyone would love the privilege of passing on the value of nature to their grandchildren on a 27-acre farm located on the island of Montreal. Yes, all this is great. But is it fair? Is it fair that some people get born into families with so many more resources than others? But is it? Why do you laugh? No, is is it fair? Is it fair? I, it's a it's an it's a it's it's an it's a, a crazy idea. You know what? Is, what has fairness got to do with it? Um, you know, I mean, there are always I mean haves and have nots. I haves and the have nots. There's always going to be people that are going to you know if you've got three chickens and I've got one, I'm going to want one of your chickens. So at least we have two chickens each. I mean, <clears throat> there's always going to be inequalities. Then, a little bit later, she jokingly asked if I was a little communist. <laughs> and said this question of fairness has followed her for her entire life. When I realized that I had so much more than other people and I was being surrounded by people that didn't have it, and, you know, they... It was difficult because they, if they knew how much money that I represented... Either they didn't like me, they were jealous of what I had, or they resented it. There will always be people that are jealous about somebody else having more than what they have. It's human nature. When we set out to tell the story, we wanted to look at a few things and ask a few questions. And erase some of the mystery around how the richest Canadians, both tactically and emotionally, pass on their money to their kids. And it seems money makes everyone a little nuts. Yeah. The rich trying to help and or control and or withhold money from the next generation, with all the money inevitably disappearing anyways. And the not rich. There's something about some person getting a fortune they didn't earn that drives a lot of us crazy. But it also makes us think, even pipe dream style, that could be me. And if I learned any real life lessons is that the rich, they're not like everybody else, the 99%. But in some ways, they are. When it comes to wealth or anything you want to pass on between generations, have conversations. Not just about money, but about values. And get everybody's buy-in. 
silence kills not just wealth, but families. Craig, there is one final question. Back in 2019, parliamentary budget officer Yves Giroux and his team were assigned to figure out if Canada were to implement a wealth tax, what could that look like? Now, a wealth tax is not the same as inheritance and inheritance tax. But the fact that it was considered does say that this conversation over financial fairness in this country isn't over. So what happened to it? So it was the NDP who asked the parliamentary budget officer to look into the wealth tax. Their specific request was what a 1% tax on the net wealth above $20 million would bring into the government. According to the parliamentary budget officer, they estimated that in 2022, this would have brought in $6.3 billion in tax revenue. Parties have been talking about a wealth tax, but to this day, it's never been introduced in any kind of legislative form. Okay, I'm ready to turn off the old money simulator. But before I do, I want to make the final wishes of my imaginary estate known. Ooh, I'll be your imaginary notary. Basically, kids, I want you to keep a bit for yourself, but give the rest away. No, that doesn't mean you open a Pokemon museum. Actually, I would go to that. But Johnny, keep writing the poetry. Okay, let's shut this thing down. Oh, well, it's good to be back in a tiny bedroom closet recording this story. No, oh, that's where I left those shoes. And so many of my socks have holes in them. <laughs> <laughs> and with that, I'm AC Rowe. And I'm Craig Dessen. And that is all for us this week. The Doc Project is produced by Tanera McLean, Joan Weber, and me. Althea Manassin is our digital producer. And our interim senior producer, Allison Cook, was our editor on today's story with... Tanera McLean. Thanks for listening. For more CBC podcasts, go to cbc.ca/podcasts.